First, I wanted to thank you for the book for Europe Central because I really liked it. I think it's a great book. And I wanted to ask you, all of your previous novels, as I know, were about North America. Why did you decide to write this one about Europe? Well, first of all, I think that uh, I've always been interested in uh, in the other, you know, whatever the other is. So one of the reasons that I have written about neo-Nazi skinheads, prostitutes, so on and so forth, is uh, because I want to understand people who are unlike me. I have written some books uh, set in, uh, in Asia, and um, it occurred to me that uh, an American perspective on... Uh, the war between Germany and Russia might be valuable simply because I am an outsider and uh, it might be a different book if a German or a Russian had, had written it. And I also feel that uh, the United States is, is showing so little empathy uh, toward the rest of the world these days that uh, I feel like it's my duty to try to show a little bit. Well, I have to disagree about this novel would be very different if Russian wrote it, because what's striking me, the biggest is uh, that this novel for the Russian ear, it sounds absolutely true. It really feels like some Russian wrote it. That's and great. I, that makes me so happy. It's really so, and it's amazing because before that, I never read a novel written by a Western writer that wouldn't have some, I don't know, some misconceptions, some misplacements of facts, maybe tiny, but it always shows that Western wrote it. This one is absolutely like a Russian wrote it. And so I wanted to ask you, I know that you made a huge research, but research for me doesn't explain it. How did you manage to do it? Well, you know... Um, I wanted to say that even some intonations in the novel are Russian. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I had, I had fun trying to, uh, to capture those. But when I was younger, I was very uh, sympathetic to the idea of communism. And, uh, and I still am. You know, it's, it's just very, very sad that uh, the execution of this noble idea involves precisely uh, execution, the execution of people so often. But for me, I guess I like to imagine Shostakovich as being originally someone who could really believe in the, the Stalinist slogan that uh, things are getting better, you know, life has become better, comrades, life has become more joyful, and that um, um, he could begin by being very naive and hopeful and optimistic and really try to, to do his best for the revolution. And then I think when the, um, the Lady Macbeth disaster happened and he suddenly realized what a, a terrible uh, peril he was in and so many people were in, his whole life changed and then changed again with the, uh, the Nazi invasion when he probably said, all right, I have to put some of this uh, stuff behind me and stand behind my country. And then after the war was over, he became progressively more disillusioned. So the way I look at it, you know, this is um, such a tremendous human story, uh, the story of, of his life and how he had to hold on to, you know, the little bit of integrity that he could in his art and let everything else go as he aged. This is sort of how I imagine myself into the the story, imagining what I would do if I were Shostakovich and 
what things uh, I would let go. And um, I really, uh, I feel so bad for him, you know, that uh, he was put in a situation where it was impossible to stay pure. And, and when I thought about it, I realized this was the situation of almost everybody in that war. You know, somebody who was, let's say, you know, a boy born in Germany such that he was 14 or 15 years old in 1940, you know, what options did he really have? What options did someone have in Stalingrad on either side? And um, the idea that basically ordinary or even good people have to sometimes fight each other in the interests of evil regimes, that's the spark that that made me uh, really, really try to do my best in this book. Some people have to spy and some people comply with it and they do. Some people uh, prefer not to do it and they perish. And do things that an artist who understands his importance for culture, do you think he should, like trying to save his life, uh, even compromising? Well, what do you think on moral side of this? I remember... Uh reading repeatedly, you know, that uh, people would say that um, the bravest thing that you could practically do would be to uh, abstain. You couldn't speak out against something unless, as you say, you were willing to be killed or imprisoned. I feel that Shostakovich did keep his integrity in his music. And for me, when I listen to, for instance, uh, Opus 110, the Eighth String Quartet, or even to uh, the Eighth Symphony. I feel that these pieces are great works of art which don't just uh, speak to me. They, they scream to me. They scream with anguish, and they make, me, they make me feel terrible in the best possible way. I listen to these, and I think, you know, my God, what awful times he went through. He is accusing his times, and uh, this music is universal. It accuses all war and all... Uh, repressive ideology, and I think that his uh, his music will you know will survive and be immortal. So he is a hero to me, and it's you know on a a more uh, practical human level, it's also the case that he did uh, help some of his students and other people at some risk to himself. So um, I think he he came out of it fairly well. It's very sad that he joined the party. But I see uh, courage and, and resolution as being a, uh, a finite quantity that can be exhausted. And when people get uh, beaten down by fear or grief or uh, even old age, they become weak. And uh, I think it's important for us to, uh, to understand that and be compassionate. What do you think uh, happened? Because uh, in Stalin times, he uh, was like... Uh, he took more like moral position and after that he joined the party after this a uh, huge pressure was uh, somewhat lifted and uh, after that uh, he joined the party and he signed this letter against Sakharov why do you think it happened not in Stalin time but in a uh, relatively liberal time in Soviet history I think that it might have happened because uh, his wife Nina died and he felt uh, alone I gather that uh, she was always uh, able to stand up and say no for him. And uh, it was very hard for him to say no. You know, one of the, 
the most comical aspects of, of his character in a way. It's something that is part of my character, too, is, you know, they would tell him to make some kind of change, and he'd say, oh, okay, never mind, I'll do that in my next symphony. And, of course, he would never do it. So it's the way all Russians acted, and even my like, acted like this in school. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And uh, and I sometimes do the same thing with demanding editors. Of course, for me, the, the stakes are much lower. No one is going to, to hurt me. <laughs> But I am guessing that uh, he got tired, and uh, he probably started to feel that uh, his moral principles were less important and that he was compromised regardless. He seems to have become more and more uh, gloomy and cynical the older he got, and I can't say I, I blame him. Do you think that if uh, his opera, if his uh, Lady Macbeth would by Stalin, if Stalin uh, liked it, And if uh, he got the Stalin Prize, if he uh, wasn't like dismissed, do you think he could be a supporter uh, of communist regime uh, until the end of his life? I mean, the real supporter, supporter inside. Right. Like, like Carmen, uh, who, who always got only the prizes and never was punished. Right. You know, my impression is that when he was a young man, that he was a fairly sincere communist, You know, he was talking about writing a whole cycle of operas about the situation of women from capitalist times until uh, socialism was achieved. And uh, I think that uh, Lady Macbeth, you know, Katrina is my Elvia, is, uh, how should I say, it's a sincere and very avant-garde attempt um, to uh, portray the bleakness of the life a woman in czarist times, even a, a relatively rich woman. I think that uh, if he had been left alone, he could have uh, continued to uh, express his his support for the, the utopian side of communism in his avant-garde, formalist way. And uh, unfortunately for him and for, uh, for the Soviet Union, those uh, sorts of uh, directions were abruptly disallowed. And I'm sure after that he felt very, very differently about communism, or at least about Stalinism. And uh, I doubt that he ever liked capitalism either. He probably felt uh, extremely grim and hopeless about everything. In Soviet Union, Ahmadova is thinked uh, about as a, like a, as a dissident. And Shostakovich mostly think, uh, thought about as a, a conformist. And Ahmatova, as uh, well as you wrote, and as we all know, wrote some uh, poems praising Stalin as well. So what do you think is the difference between them? I think the difference is that a poem like Ahmatova's Requiem is so clearly, you know, anti-Stalinist and, uh, and perhaps anti-Soviet, whereas uh, music can have any sort of interpretation. You know, at one point, people might say that the rap theme in Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony describes the idiocy of Hitler's fascism. And then at another time, uh, it might be said that uh, actually it's about uh, Stalinism or both. And um, Akhmatova did not have that luxury. You know, uh, her words are much less ambiguous. Than, than music can be. 
in my opinion, both of them uh, compromised to survive, and both of them were were in their way dissidents. You know, Stalin could promote the Seventh Symphony and say, yeah, this is about Hitler. Obviously, he couldn't promote Requiem and say this is about Hitler. You, in your book, you, as I understand, hardly used uh, Wolkov books, that's most famous, though most contra- controversial as well, source of information about Shostakovich in America. Why? Why didn't you cite it or use it? What I do you did, think of it? I did use it a little bit. And, um, you know, who am I to say how genuine it is? The only thing that I can say as as a literary writer is that... Um, Some of the uh, the turns of phrase in that book seem to me very, very similar to the uh, the turns of phrase that uh, Shostakovich actually used when he was quoted in uh, in other sources. And actually, the epigraph to the book, the majority of my symphonies are tombstones. I think that comes from Volkov. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if Volkov embellished or exaggerated some of the things that Shostakovich said, and uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. You know, I, I just don't know enough. What do you think? I don't know either, because I'm not a big specialist about Shostakovich, and uh, it's about all I uh, read about it, so I'm not in position to decide. Oh, okay. Uh, but, well, his book about Brodsky, uh, Wolkov's book that I read, that sounds very true. And oh, really? just Shostakovich book. It sounds in this book that somebody of them, either Volkov or Shostakovich, trying to like uh, show Shostakovich more like more dissident than he actually was. That's what I felt about it. But who was it, Shostakovich himself or Volkov? I don't know. And the the interesting thing about uh, Shostakovich, or one of many interesting things, is that he was such a private, secret person. And I understand, of course, that that was part of the the national character, too, in those days, that people couldn't afford not to be secret. They had to be so afraid of talking to anyone about anything. But uh, even so, his life remained such a mystery, and and to me, uh, that made him all the more fascinating, just imagining this person who was so guarded, and you wonder what really uh, lies uh, in his depths. One of the, the, the characteristic speech patterns that he had would be um, not finishing a sentence and stammering a little bit and then changing the subject. So I thought, well, this book in a way is about um, various attempts to, uh, to deal with horrible events. And uh, what my Shostakovich character continually does is to start talking about something And then uh, all of a sudden realize that he's saying something terrible or dangerous that might get him in trouble or something that is very, very close to a, a subject that causes him pain. And so quickly he stops and changes the sentence and goes in a different direction and then runs into some other awful, monstrous thing that tortures him equally. And uh, so much of the time he just lurches from one sad topic to another. And uh, the uh, the Volkov book suggests somebody who was dwelling on um, on things like this. It's not a uh, a hopeful book at all. The Shostakovich of that book has just 
given up and is very uh, bitter and resentful about almost everything. Well, this speech of Shostakovich, how th- he thinks, how he speaks in your book is very convincing and very Russian as well. And I wanted to ask, uh, what were your sources? How did you learn about uh, all this, like, little details of Russian life, how Russians speak and uh, all this stuff? Well, it first started when I was in Spain for uh, the translation of one of my novels over there. And I was in an airport looking for something to read. There was a an oral history of uh, Shostakovich, which I bought. And uh, it was a, a series of descriptions of him all through his life by other people. And they would often quote uh, certain characteristic things that Shostakovich said. And I thought, wow, this is so interesting. What a unique way this man has of speaking. And I decided I wanted to learn how to mimic it and create this kind of speech. And once I did, then I began to realize the the power of the unstated, you know, the power of the repressed. And who's to say if the real Shostakovich uh, actually repressed things the way mine does? But to me, it was a an element, uh, a, a way of, of adding uh, an additional tragic element to his character by using this speech to suggest that he was trapped in almost every turn. Do you think that there is, in like in historical perspective, there is a difference why uh, he wrote some symphony, some piece of music? Because right now in Prague they, uh, there are posters about concerts that will be played here uh, and celebrating Shostakovich 100 years anniversary. And they are playing uh, all kinds of music. They are playing 10th symphony, they are playing 7th, and they are playing Song of Forests. So maybe like in 100 years or 200 years, nobody will care if uh, the Song of Forest was written to like praise Stalin. Everybody just will forget about it. So is there any difference against uh, Tyron or in praise of Tyron some uh, thing was written? I think that, you know, ultimately the only thing that will last is the artistic quality of the pieces. You know, uh, if you read uh, Virgil's Aeneid, you find out, you know, at the end that it is uh, basically a propaganda tract for uh, Rome. And um, I think that if the music is good in and of itself, then eventually the uh, the circumstances of its composition become uh, less and less important. I think Malro says something like... Uh, All that we have retained from uh, Aeschylus is his genius. And at some point, a hundred years from now or two hundred years from now, you know, only the genius of Shostakovich will remain. The context will be lost. And uh, during the siege of Leningrad, the uh, the Seventh Symphony was considered to be great music. And uh, it seems like fewer people consider that to be great music now. People don't remember the Siege of Leningrad, unless, of course, you happen to, to live in that area. And um, it seems like in uh, in the States, for instance, what I see the most often are the, uh, the preludes and fugues. There are at least uh, three recordings that I know, all very, very different, and uh, they're beautiful, and yet very, very chromatically complex works that repeat 
pay a lot of listening. So perhaps it's those that will, will go down into the future more so than, say, the, the 10th symphony that you mentioned. It's, it's hard to know. What do you think of relationships be- between power and artist? Because in Russia, well, Russia had a hard, difficult history. And in Russia, many people believe that authoritarian times, tyrannic times, totalitarian times, the best time for creators or for artists, because like artists become more concentrated, something like that. Uh, either oh. in good way or in bad way, maybe. Right. Or praising something or like uh, collecting himself against something. Right. Well, I think that some of the most uh, powerful Eastern European literature that I have read, you know, people like Kandvisky, the early Kundara, people like this, succeeded precisely because their region was oppressed. And uh, I think the later books by Konvisky that I have read, as the situation of Poland improved, are not uh, as great as, for instance, a dream book for our time. And so uh, you may be right in that uh, any sort of traumatic event can be uh, used by an artist to create something very, very moving. And uh, if the traumatic event is caused by human beings, by dictators, then uh, people might have all the more reason to do it. You know, Requiem was, uh, was a very, very brave, powerful uh, poem, which, uh, which, you know, even now and even in uh, translation, you know, uh, can bring tears to my eyes. So I guess I, I agree with you. Uh, speaking of Eastern Europe, the name of the novel is Europe Central. I wonder why in this novel there is a hardly a word about uh, Europe Central, uh, like proper, about uh, Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland. Did you choose this name on purpose? You know, in the, in the novel, there are two competing regimes. You could almost call them empires. Each one wants to devour the other one. And Nazi Germany wants to say, I am Europe, I am at the center of the world, I'm going to control everything in Europe and as much as possible of Russia as well. And then uh, after uh, Stalingrad and Kursk, the Soviet Union was saying, guess what, I'm going to come into Europe and uh, Europe is going to become you know, a Stalinist satellite. So... Um, Each one of these regimes was using the name of Europe, but basically uh, Europe was just going to be annexed territory, and each one wanted to become the center and turn uh, Europe into the periphery, to use a, you know, a Marxist uh, terminology there. As I understand, you have uh, German ancestors. Is it true? Uh, yes, that is, that is true. Yeah, my last name is German, and... Uh, There is some German uh, blood on my father's side. Mm-hmm. And why did you choose your main character? Because I believe Shostakovich is a main character, not from German side, but from Russian side. I mean, uh, you didn't have, because you have German ancestors, you don't have to write about Germans. But anyway, why did you choose uh, Russian, not German, as a main character of the novel? Let's see. Well, I guess... Uh, why did you choose Shostakovich, let's say, let's right. say it like this? 
you know, in Shostakovich, I can really see myself. I am an artist in my own way, and I am a little bit of an idealist, as I believe that, uh, that Shostakovich originally was. And when I imagine myself in his situation, I wonder what I would have done and whether I could have done nearly as well as he did. I relate to, uh, to his uh, sadness. And I have to say, too, that um, I haven't spent very much time in Russia. I've only been there two times. But each time, I feel a, a tremendous uh, sense of uh, rapture and excitement. I would love to get deeper into Russia. And writing about Shostakovich gave me an excuse to at least imagine myself into Russia a little bit. And uh, where in Russia have you been and when it was? Oh, let's see. I was, uh, the second time I went to Afghanistan, it was, uh, it was during the uh, Taliban time. I was briefly in, uh, in Moscow, and then uh, I was in Petersburg. And actually, just last uh, summer, I went back to Petersburg for two or three weeks. I was invited to be a um, sort of a, a faculty guest for a, a, a writing program there. And I really, really loved it. I'm finishing up a book about uh, poor people. And uh, one of the chapters was about some uh, babushkas uh, begging near the cathedral of the spilled blood. And I interviewed them and interviewed their families in certain cases and uh, learned a lot from them. But I would, I would love to go back. And uh, you would like to go back to St. Petersburg, or you would rather go to some Russian uh, like outlying uh, regions like Ural or something? Anywhere. <laughs> Anywhere in Russia. And uh, I would enjoy actually traveling extensively and getting a sense of what it means uh, to be Russian now. I mean, what a huge area and... What a, a beautiful landscape. The little I've seen, I, I think, is so great. And I get a kick out of, uh, out of the way the, the people are. The, the Russian women are stern and tender at the same time. The, uh, the Russian men are some of the, the toughest-looking people I have ever seen anywhere in the world. And uh, the fact that uh, so many people can uh, quote uh, Akhmatova Everybody, you know, taxi drivers, prostitutes. I always admire people who love poetry enough to memorize it. But do you think they uh, really like uh, really like this poetry? Maybe they just learned it in school and remember some lines. Because uh, in the last time, at least for me, in the last like 10 or 15 times, it doesn't seem that Russians now read very much. It's uh, certainly not uh, as it used to be before. I'm sorry to hear that. Of course, uh, it's got to be worse in my country where nobody remembers anything. <laughs> And about your country, I had a short correspondence, a correspondence with Kate Beckinsdale, and she thinks that uh, this uh, Europe Central novel, she uh, corresponds with the situation in modern uh, United States. Uh, is it true? Because, like, I, well, it's hard, hard to believe that it's really such a bad situation in the U.S. now. Yeah, of course, I don't think it's that bad. I think that, you know, we have a, uh, a foolish, uh, wicked president with uh, some foolish, wicked people who are helping him to, uh, to do some, uh, some terrible things. It's uh, shameful to me that my country uh, 
supports torture and has uh, entered into uh, an unjust war. But even so, I would not compare us to Nazis or Stalinists. And in fact, uh, Americans do make a um, sort of a cameo appearance in Europe Central toward the end with the Van Cliburn character. And to me, that's more characteristically uh, American, that uh, mostly our sin is not uh, the sin of, of unilateral violence, which is one reason why I'm so disgusted at this president. Our sin tends to be the sin of forgetting. You know, when I visited uh, Iraq between the two Gulf Wars, my neighbors in uh, Sacramento had no idea that we were still at war with Iraq, that we were still sanctioning and blockading the country. And they were amazed that anyone in Iraq would be angry at us. That's the American sin. And that's, I think, very, very different from uh, the way that, uh, that things are in uh, totalitarian countries, where you're constantly reminded to hate this person or that country. Uh, for me, uh, it seems for me that forgetting is a common sin for every nation, maybe except Germans, because Russians are very likely to forget what they've done to Central Europe, to other nations, to Afghanistan, and thinking that it's like just at past why, why anybody should be angry with us. And I think it's maybe only Germans are learned to, to remember what they did. Yeah, that's right. When I was in Berlin a couple of years ago, I have to say I was very impressed that there were monuments everywhere to Jews who were deported from this spot, and the Wannsee Conference happened at that spot and so forth. And I felt that the, the young people were very uh, open about it. So I thought that that was good. As far as the other uh, general phenomena you mentioned, of course, uh, human nature will always be such that if, uh, if we have uh, done a bad thing or taken something from someone in the past, that's the status quo. And uh, if someone else has done a bad thing to us, then, of course, we're more inclined to remember it and demand our rights because human beings are fundamentally selfish. Had you been to this Wanzia SS house where they made this final decision? Uh, yes, I have. Have you been there? Uh, I've been there and it's very strange feeling like some condensed evil uh, stayed there. It was very strange for me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very beautiful place. It's very beautiful, it's very nice, but I didn't even know that it happened there. Found out only after two days, but anyway, it feels something creepy. Oh, it's extremely creepy. Absolutely, yeah. I think it is, uh, it's terrific that they have uh, turned that place into a museum. About uh, America, it seems now that like about all of the modern generation of uh, big American writers, except uh, for those who named Jonathan, live now in California. And like never before, even in Californian heydays, California wasn't center for American literature. So why is it happening now? Gosh, that's, uh, that's hard to know. People sometimes say that uh, California, for whatever reason, anticipates the, the trends of uh, other parts of the United States. But um, I imagine it's, it's just an accident and that at some point the writers will be in a different place. You know, if we're going to talk about superstructure, let's say, then, um, of course... 
this phenomenon is more likely to occur where there are a lot of publishers. And uh, the East Coast and the West Coast have lots of publishers. So it's more likely to happen there than, uh, than in the Midwest, at least for now. Uh, do you think there, there is some artistic opposition between West Coast and East Coast? I think so. I think that in the East Coast, people are, uh, are more conscious of the past, for better and for worse. In the West Coast, because uh, there is a little bit less memory, there's a little bit less emphasis on uh, pre-existing class structures, that uh, there can be, in a way, more freedom. And uh, there can also be more narcissism. So we can't say that one is, is better than the other. You wrote nine novels, and most of them are really big. Uh, you wrote some books of stories, uh, this huge rising up and rising down of rockets, really big, and two non-fiction books, as I know. And it all was completed in 19 years. And you uh, make a great amount of research for every book, as I know. You are looking for facts, you are checking everything. How do you manage to work this much? Well, you know, it's something that I love to do. And it makes me happy to do it. And um, I also, uh, I love to read, and I'm a fast reader. And for me, whenever I can, I buy the books that, uh, that I will use in my research. And then I can keep them for years. And if I want to look at them in the middle of the, the night, I can. I remember, I think I was in, uh, in high school. My father was a professor in Indiana, And there was some kind of exchange with some faculty from the Soviet Union. This was in the, the 70s. And they came over and uh, they, uh, I remember they looked at my books. I, I had a lot of books even then. And they were kind of uh, disgusted, I think. They thought that, uh, you know, it was very uh, wasteful and selfish for one, uh, you know, teenage boy to have all these books when uh, other people could have used them, you know, and, and they were right in a way. But libraries in the U.S. are not that good. The hours are constantly cut back. And so that's my secret is to keep my books and um, keep them for years. Many of the books that um, I use for uh, Europe Central are books that I've had since the 1970s. And I know those books pretty well. Do you read modern uh, modern Russian literature, like Russian literature of the 20th century? And if yes, what do you read and what do you like? Well, uh, let's see. It depends on how uh, modern. I, I do think that uh, Akhmatova is a great poet. I, I like uh, Mandelstam very much. I'm very impressed with uh, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate and have recommended that to uh, a number of people. And uh, I wish that, uh, that my uh, Russian were, were better. When I was in college, I took a year of Russian, and I can, I can sound out uh, Cyrillic and signs and so forth, but that's about all that I can do now. Uh, what do you think of the state of uh, modern American literature? What state is it in now? Is it a good period for it, uh, like moderate or better? I would say it's a pretty bad period right now. But why it? Uh, for me, there are so many good writers. Oh, uh, no. well, I think that um, that maybe the uh, 
the forced uh, violent engagement between the U.S. and the rest of the world, or <laughs> so much of the world, will eventually benefit uh, American literature because writers and readers are going to be forced to to think a little bit harder. But for a long time, there has been a, a narcissistic uh, trend in, uh, in American literature, and all you read about is uh, American characters doing American things. And to me, it's a little bit like uh, going to see a Hollywood movie, and after a while, you think, hmm, there are about uh, six or seven plots or kinds of plots. And sometimes they change this plot element or that plot element, but I can guess what's going to happen next. I think that uh, the situation of American literature would be much better if American writers got out more and went to other places. You know, surely there must be some, uh, some great novels about to happen uh, about uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and September 11th. And, uh, and I am hoping that someday there will be great literature about the, uh, the terrible things uh, associated with Chechnya. Uh, but, well, Russian writers uh, mostly write about Russia, Americans mostly write about Americans. It seems to me just normal. And uh, I don't know what you think about, but I think uh, Fly in Our Cuckoo's Nest is a great book, and it's not about some big event, but about some very, like, small event in a mental hospital. That's a wonderful book, absolutely. And, uh, of course, that was a, uh, that was a different time uh, that that was written. You, you know, you asked about my opinion of the state of American literature now. But I, I think that is a wonderful book. I think actually uh, sometimes a great notion is also uh, a very good book. Those are his two best books. And, uh, you know, Cormac McCarthy is obviously a, uh, a fantastic writer. He is one of my favorite American writers. Are there some uh, American writers of, this, uh, of today that you could recommend? Um, well... McCarthy is still alive, although I thought his last book was weak. But, uh, you know, all his other books, I think, are, are wonderful. And, like, the, the last traditional question is, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I'm getting ready to start uh, one of my Seven Dreams novels. It's going to be about the, uh, the Nez Perce Indians and uh, the attempted escape of uh, Chief Joseph from northeastern Oregon up to the Canadian border. I'm almost finished with a, uh, a nonfiction book about Japanese no theater, and I go to Japan every year to work on that. My book on uh, poor people is about to come out, and a long uh, nonfiction book about the, uh, the California-Mexico border and both sides of it and the history. I'm hoping to finish up by April. Are you feeling that you are like uh, finished uh, with Russia or you maybe will write some books on Russian or European topics later? I would love to write some more books about Russia. And uh, actually, when I was in, uh, in Petersburg, I started writing a, uh, a poem about the, the summer garden and uh, I'm having a lot of fun with that. But I would like to just spend a month in some place in Russia sometime in the next couple of years, and really get to know some people and, and try, to, uh, try to increase my understanding and write something accordingly.